0: Hello and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say. My name's Adrian Goldberg. This week, the COVID deniers and lockdown skeptics Whether it's Toby Young on Newsnight defending talk radio after one of their interviews about Covid was temporarily removed by YouTube. Whether it's a member of the London Assembly posting links to a video by someone claiming their local hospital isn't really under pressure. There is a constant noise about whether we can really believe what we're being told about the pandemic and whether restricting people's activities is a sensible way of dealing with it. This hospital consultant working on the front line of COVID care tells the Byline Times podcast he's had enough of the
1: doubters. It's not just nutty groups on hashtags on the web like Keep Britain Free or Pandemic is Over UK or Lockdown Skeptics UK. We've got columnists in mainstream mass circulation newspapers coming out with these things. We've got talking head guests coming on broadcast media. We've got people hosting shows on certain radio stations. It's almost like we're being collectively gaslighted that everything we're seeing, everything we've faced, everything we know, is all a lie.
0: Plus, Julian Assange, his extradition to the United States has been blocked by a British court in what is being seen as a victory for press freedom. James Dolman has been covering the case four byline times and
2: acknowledges that while Assange is respected, he's not always admired. He is a very polarising figure. Absolutely true. It's certainly a proven fact that WikiLeaks did contact the Donald Trump campaign during the election, the 2016 election. That's a fact. And offered assistance more on that fascinating assange court case to come
0: but first a reminder that the byline times needs your support to keep on keeping on with our bold and independent journalism we're not underwritten by a media tycoon or an oligarch our funding comes from people like you our readers and listeners for just 36 pounds a year you can buy a subscription to our brilliant monthly newspaper The byline times and that supports our website byline tv and this podcast so you can get details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com that's bylinetimes.com now byline times has been on the case of the covid deniers and lockdown skeptics for months our writer nafiz ahmed established a link between the great barrington declaration which promotes the idea of herd immunity and a think tank funded by a right-wing US billionaire known as a climate change denier. The declaration was signed by a small group of British scientists who I discussed with Nafiz in a previous edition of this podcast and it's well worth seeking out. But despite our best efforts to debunk those who are undermining the public health message, the Covid deniers and lockdown sceptics continued to be heard, whether through mainstream outlets like Rupert Murdoch's talk radio or newspapers. Their number even includes conservative backbenchers. Then there's David Curtin, who I've written about in Byline Times. He's a London Assembly member who posted links on social media to a campaigner who had filmed what she said were empty wards at her local hospital and claimed it showed they weren't under pressure. The film has been viewed 180,000 times. We're aware of professionally produced leaflets being put through doors of ordinary homes in Berkshire supporting the Great Barrington Declaration. Professor David Oliver, who has been a hospital doctor for more than 30 years, told me how it feels to have the credibility of the medical profession called into question and what it's been like to work on the medical front line over the past few months.
1: I've been working with COVID patients throughout March and April and May during the first wave of the pandemic and then things quieted down over the summer. And then ever since September, I've been working on a 28 bedded ward where all the patients have COVID because we have to separate them out from the, the people who don't have COVID. But also when I'm on call for all the emergencies coming through the hospital front door like I am today, we're seeing very large numbers of people with COVID. So to give you a sense of this morning, uh, I've seen 22 people so far and my consultant colleague working with me has seen another 24 and half of those people are quite sick with COVID. So I've been both on the inpatient wards and then when I'm on call for emergencies, uh, we're pretty much surrounded by people who've got COVID infection at the moment. And we did have a quiet phase in the summer where we were not, and things were starting to return to normal. And to give your listeners another sense of things, in the hospital I work in, on Christmas Eve, we had 75 people in the beds who had COVID. By the time I came into work on the Monday bank holiday on the 28th, we already had 170. We're up to 195 people now. During that two weeks, our intensive care unit has almost doubled in size, which is part of the plan. Last time round, it went from 18 beds to 39 beds. And this is on top of what normally happens in winter, where we have a big surge of admissions and pressures on the beds uh, anyway. And of course, when the camera crews are allowed in, they tend to focus on the drama of intensive care unit with all the staff wearing full hazmat suits and beekeeper helmets and, you know, patients on ventilation. But the majority of people who are admitted to hospital with COVID, although a lot of them are sick, they don't go to ICU. They don't go to the intensive care unit. We also have lots of people in the higher monitoring unit who are on high flow oxygen, who are on what you call non-invasive ventilation or CPAP. But we have lots of quite sick people who are on the wards who don't get as far as needing ICU, but it still occupies a lot of our time and attention at the moment. And people who say it's no different from a normal flu season or it's all false positives and they don't really have COVID, they're not seeing the people we're seeing. We know those of us who have worked year in, year out in the service. This is something very different. If you talk to the radiologists who are reporting the x-rays, they see it. We're seeing lots of people with pneumonia in both lungs who require lots of oxygen, who can take days and days to get off oxygen, and who are very hard to get home and are at risk of deterioration. It's something quite different from anything we've seen before. And the other thing is why hospitals look different Normally we'd have open visiting, we'd have lots of relatives coming onto the wards. We can't have that at the moment because of infection risk. So we're having to do a lot of work on the phone. And then of course the staff themselves are all having to go around in various levels of personal protective equipment for their own safety. And something that's never happened before really in my career, because I don't we you know we're not working in war hospitals in bombed cities is colleagues are coming into work and they're getting sick because they're catching COVID at work. And one of my close friends in British medicine, who was only in his early 60s, he died yesterday from COVID in another hospital. And I've had other medical and nursing colleagues of mine die. And, and, you know, a lot of other people get hospitalised or be sick for weeks after it. So it's quite a scary place to be because you're coming into work when most people are being asked to stay at home and you're going straight into the eye of the storm really surrounded by people with coronavirus and we know that staff are more likely to get sick and that's the other thing is we already had staffing gaps before the pandemic started. We've now got a number of people who are off self-isolating or off sick so that kind of compounds the problem with the extra busyness and the extra sickness of the patients.
0: You're obviously a very experienced consultant How does the strain of dealing with wards full of COVID patients compare to a normal winter?
1: Even in the past three or four winters, hospitals have been running well over 90% bed occupancy. You know, there's been longer waits in the emergency department. I mean, so we're always pretty full and we're always pressurised. But I think it's the number of people who are sick, the number of people who are deteriorating, the number of people who who are dying, the the fact that you can't speak to their relatives face-to-face and you have to have some pretty difficult conversations on the phone, the fact that the staff are themselves at risk of, of getting unwell. But the other thing, Adrian, is that because of infection control, we're trying to separate the people with COVID from the people without COVID. And so you've got to separate the streams of people coming through the emergency department and the acute medical unit into two separate areas. You've got to separate the wards into different bed bases And that puts more pressure on the beds because you can't have quite the same number of beds available. And if you do get an outbreak of COVID on a ward, then that can close that ward or the base on that ward. And the other thing is trying to get people back home again. Well, often we've got three generations, two generations of the same family. You've got COVID. So you're trying to send people home where the people who are caring for them might be ill or might be at risk of getting ill. And things like trying to move people to, say, community hospitals or care homes are more difficult because of the infection control risk. You know, you have to have beds a bit further apart and so forth. And that's an- another thing that's happened is that whereas usually we don't mix men and women in the same wards, we've had to do more of that mixing up of the sexes because of the infection control risk. So it's it's a very different feel f- from a normal winter for all those reasons. But, you know, beyond under no illusion, hospitals are busy every winter, and the NHS has about the fewest hospital beds per thousand population in, of any developed nation, so we've got a small number of beds that are always under pressure.
0: When people question the reality of COVID, suggest that it is in some way a hoax. We've had a citizen journalist going around a hospital in Gloucester, showing what she argues were empty wards and therefore that there was no evidence to support the idea that the hospital was under pressure from COVID. How does that make you feel?
1: I think not just me, but it makes all of us who work in the frontline feel very undermined and very frustrated when we're there's a dissonance between our lived reality, seeing all these very sick people. And often, by the way, the people I'm seeing now aren't all old and frail. you see people in their 40s and 50s and 60s where they're between what your lived reality is of very sick people presenting in large numbers with a, a virus that we know is real and different and the stuff that's being said that hospitals are half empty that they're under no more pressure than a normal winter it's a normal flu season and you wonder why people are trying to undermine the work you're doing and undermine public health efforts but I think something that social media has brought about is you now get I mean, it's great that it's democratised information and you can be speaking to someone who's quite well-known or quite senior quite freely. But the, the worst of the denialists, conspiracy theorists, lockdown sceptics will not believe the official data on deaths or hospital activity coming out of independent agencies like the Office for National Statistics. They won't believe what experienced, trained professionals are, are, are telling them. And so, you know, things like it's all because of false positive PCR tests there is an issue with false positive tests but the people we're seeing who clearly have coronavirus that's not being um, you know that's not an artifact of some tests so it's it's upsetting and it's unsettling and we think it undermines health protection efforts and we most of us never wanted all of that clapping in the first place in the in the spring and people sending food packages we're just doing our jobs but we could do without people actively undermining health prevention efforts and spreading disinformation on the on the web and it's not just nutty groups on hashtags on the web like keep britain free or pandemic is over uk or lockdown skeptics uk we've got columnists in mainstream mass circulation newspapers coming out with these things we've got talking head guests coming on broadcast media we've got people hosting shows on certain radio stations It's almost like we're being collectively gaslighted that everything we're seeing, everything we've faced, everything you know, is all a lie. And of course, um, going around a hospital in the corridors where beds aren't meant to be, taking photographs, doesn't prove anything about how full the hospital is. And if listeners look at my Twitter feed, they'll see that I posted some corridor pictures in the middle of a working day from a full hospital where you wouldn't see any patients. You know, it proves nothing. So it, it's, it's upsetting, and it makes me quite angry.
0: Let's talk through one or two of the claims made by the COVID deniers to see if we can understand them. The criticism that you've alluded to, I think, of the lateral flow test for COVID, that is a, a flawed instrument, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll try and talk through the testing, OK? The okay. most widespread test in use is the PCR or polymerase chain reaction test. And you'll see it being bandied about that it has a very high false positive rate. The truth is, in people where you suspect they have COVID because they've got symptoms or they've been in close contact, it, false positive rate is only about 1% or 2%. That's the percentage of people who do have, do not have COVID who, that, who test positive. Okay. The problem with that test is that if you go and do mass screening for the whole population of people who don't have symptoms... Even though only maybe one in a hundred of the tests is a false positive, if you do it for the whole population and most people don't have it, you'll suddenly get lots of big numbers of people where it you know they don't have COVID. But that the number of tests that's been done across the UK over the past three months hasn't changed much. And yet the number of positive cases is going up massively. So it's not it's not an artifact. And in fact the PCR test has a much higher false negative rate. In other words, people come in who do have COVID and maybe the first test is negative. Now, the lateral flow test, which is a point of care test that you can do a lot more quickly as a kind of screening test, does have a significant issue with false negative rates. Maybe one in three of the tests in people who do have COVID come back negative. So it's not a great way of reassuring anybody that uh, they don't have it. If you test positive on lateral flow, most of those people will go on to test positive on the more definitive PCR test. But the idea that because you've had lateral flow, that gives you the all clear is not true. And I think a lot of the issue is there's not really any evidence for doing whole population screening. The advice has always been, and this is one thing that denialists are very fond of doing, is trying to whip up some kind of false dispute between the scientists the advice has always been that what we should be doing is assertive testing, tracking, tracing, isolating the contacts to clamp down on outbreaks locally. It's not good practice to go and screen the whole population with things like the actual flow tests. And of course, there'll be false negative tests using that test.
0: But notwithstanding the flaws in the testing regime, the reality is that many more people are contracting covid and that those people in many cases are becoming seriously ill. We shouldn't allow justifiable complaints that there sometimes are about the testing regime to blind us to the reality that you're seeing on
1: a daily basis on the ward. You no, know, hospital admissions, mortality and so forth are going up. And there's a tends to be a focus because of news values on the people at the real sharp end of being on intensive care units or dying. And then one thing you'll see is, well, 99, you know, five percent of people survive. But a lot of people who don't die, a lot of people who don't go to intensive care, are still bloody ill for days or weeks with it. And a lot of people suffer long COVID who are still suffering symptoms weeks and weeks after the initial infection. So it isn't just about the relatively small number who gets sick enough to die. It's very real. and Ask any frontline hospital doctor around the UK. That's their lived reality. And it was, by the way, the lived reality in other European countries as well, both first time round and again.
0: One thing that puzzles me about the deniers is that it would require an enormous conspiracy to believe that doctors in hospitals across the UK are making up the number of cases, making up the severity of cases. I, I struggle to understand why or how people can, can construe that in any way, or indeed, the end of that conspiracy would be?
1: Of course, conspiracy theories often fall down on a few things, don't they? One is no credible motive. So, you know, there's a lot of narrative out there that somehow doctors are falsifying death certificates. So the number of deaths has been exaggerated. It would be a serious offence for us to be falsifying or fabricating death certificates. All death certificates are carefully discussed. We have to put on to the best of our knowledge and belief why the person died. They have to be discussed with an independent medical examiner of deaths and often a second doctor if there's a cremation. When we write that coronavirus has contributed to the death, that is real. There's no credible motive for doing it. And there's no way that 300,000 registered medical practitioners in the UK will be keeping that covered up. There's also no credible motive for us to exaggerate how sick the people are that we're seeing. And the bodies that produce the official activity data, the official death stats, like the Office for of National Statistics, like NHS England, why would they be fabricating the data? There's no possible gain from doing that. So it lacks motive, it lacks credibility that we'd all keep it hidden for so long, and it lacks any evidence. And just to say, though, Adrian, many doctors, including me, many public health experts, are very disappointed with the government's handling of the pandemic in this country, and we think there have been all sorts of mistakes, But if you want to see flaws in plain sight, then look at things like the awarding of test, track and trace contracts to consultancies and outsourcing companies, the awarding of contracts to PPE manufacturers. And this isn't hearsay. This is National Audit Office report. Well, indeed, and stuff that we've featured extensively on the Byline Times. So in plain sight, there are things where there is evidence. And we we have been slow out of the traps in this country, weren't properly prepared, We didn't invest enough in test, track, and trace and isolation. Scientific advice has been ignored. But that's, I think, I think there's a couple of false dichotomies, a bit of a couple of straw men that the denialists talk about, okay? The first is that we have to choose between the economy and jobs and mental well being versus COVID. In reality, the countries that tackled COVID well their economies have taken less of a hit and they've got society more back to normal. If you have a pandemic surging through, say, the hospitality industry, the leisure industry, because you've done nothing about public health, it won't help jobs. If you have lots of people who can't work because they've got long COVID symptoms or they're caring for sick relatives, it won't help. So it's not either or. And the other false dichotomy is that we're somehow choosing to favour people with COVID over people with other conditions. But in reality... The same hospitals, the same GP surgeries that are looking after people with coronavirus are looking after people with those other conditions. And if those people with other conditions come into contact and get infected, they, they will often die from COVID. If you get loads of COVID emergencies, they'll spill over into the beds that were available. So there isn't some deliberate decision being made to prefer or favor COVID. And yet it's being presented as this kind of uh, false choice.
0: Yeah, the COVID patients will be those who are presenting as most acute and therefore need the bed most urgently.
1: The other thing is you'll see people advancing the argument. I've seen it made by Ross Clark in the Mail and the the Telegraph. I've seen it made by Julia Hartley Brewer. I've seen it made by Toby Young. And they will say only about 360 people who are under the age of 60 who did not have pre-existing conditions died from COVID.
0: Yes, I think it was 388 people they identified. I saw Julia Hartley Brewer, who is the talk radio host, tweeting about that. This is the idea that only 388 people aged under 60 died from COVID unless they had a pre-existing health condition.
1: Yeah, that's correct. But it's very, very sinister agenda because forget the pandemic. At any time, if you're older... If you've got underlying medical conditions, if you're from a deprived background or certain ethnic groups, you are more likely to get ill, more likely to be hospitalized, and more likely to die. If we're talking about writing off everybody over 60 as not worth worrying about protecting their health, there's something like, you can check the stats, but there's something like 12 million people over 60 in the UK. There's about three or four million over 80, and that's someone's dad, someone's mum, that's someone who may still be working, who may be an active grandparent or whatever, and they have human worth. And then when we talk about people with pre-existing conditions, just to be clear, often those conditions are something like diabetes or high blood pressure or asthma. And these are people who are functioning, who are able to do everything you and I can do, who just happen to have this underlying diabetes or asthma. They're not people who are terminally ill with end-stage cancer. And by the way, there are millions and millions of adults under 60 who've got pre-existing conditions. So the notion that you can somehow protect all those people and then let the rest of us get on with our lives. Well, it doesn't leave that many people. Most people over 50 will have a couple of long-term conditions. But it's also completely unrealistic. It's rhetoric, it's sound bites with no logistical plan. I frequently see people where three generations of the same family have got COVID or two generations. Those people who are older or have existing conditions rely on interaction with family members, they rely on care from professional staff, and they're often in multi-occupancy households, especially in deprived areas, you can't just separate them. And I think that the fundamentally at the core of a lot of the stuff from the denialists is selfishness. As long as I am capable of judging my personal risk and I'm prepared to take the risk of dying, it doesn't really matter if I infect anybody else or I put a strain on the NHS that will deprive somebody else of a bed. It's, you know, reducing libertarian free will to an extraordinary degree and the other thing is they love to quote Sweden they say well the Swedes had a much better pandemic it's now being shown beyond any doubt that Sweden has not had a good pandemic response they've had even more care home deaths than we have and actually the Swedes in any case were not as laissez-faire as is being portrayed you know most people did work from home people did change their behavior I don't think people are getting that this is about collectivism and some of the denialists who are coming out with these arguments, imagine the uh, Second World War, which some of them seem to be quite fond of as a, you know, a time of national pride. Imagine the war was on now. They'd be the people saying, we don't need to use blackout curtains. That's infringing our liberty. We'll leave the lights on. We're not going to use ration books, because why should we? We're not going to have our children evacuated to the countryside, because it's all about our personal choice. And besides which, people in the military are exaggerating how bad the bombs are. And it's all being whipped up, you know. I mean, that's, it's the same kind of thinking. We're not divorced from the rest of society. And what decisions we make as individuals do impact on other people. And we had the specter the other night of Piers Corbyn et al. Protesting right outside St Thomas' Hospital, where I used to work, with no masks on. Basically talking about pandemics, While people inside the building are trying to support very sick patients with COVID at some personal risk.
0: Now, at least some of the impetus for COVID denial has come from something called the Great Barrington Declaration, which advocates a herd immunity approach to COVID-19. The declaration itself was unveiled at a meeting in Great Barrington in Massachusetts, and it was sponsored by a think tank which is part-funded by a right-wing libertarian US billionaire called Charles Koch, who happens to be a climate change denier as well. And that link was uncovered in the Byline Times by our writer Nafiz Ahmed. And it does suggest for at least some of the people involved in COVID denial, there's a kind of ideological aspect as well.
1: It absolutely is about an ideology. And we had the same with an offshore millionaire called Simon Dolan, who was helping to encourage the uh, pandemic is over UK and keep Britain free movements. They believe in small states, uh, they're anti-NHS, they're anti-public sector. It's all about libertarianism and free choice. And the same individuals uh, from some of the right-wing think tanks as well on Tufton Street love to very selectively cite data suggesting that insurance-based health systems outperform tax-funded health systems, but it's all about ideology. And of course, behind this is that people with business interests don't want to lose income through their own businesses not being able to trade. So absolutely, the Great Barrington Declaration is heavily influenced by ideology. And the denialists, of course, there's a lot of talking heads with no scientific or medical experience or qualifications, but they do manage to find half a dozen pet scientists and pet medics who are usually way outside the mainstream of thinking or credible expertise, and they will selectively cite the data that those individuals then selectively present in advance of their argument. But often these people have been on the wrong side of the arguments. And I think one thing the mainstream uh, news media tend to do is they present false equivalents. You'll have, and it was the same with climate change, you have an overwhelming majority of uh, view about for instance, how serious COVID is, you know, how fatal it is, the pressure it's putting on the system. And you can find a small number of contrarians to put the other side. And yet they're rarely captioned with the fact that they're speaking on behalf of a small state think tank, or the fact that the scientist they've got is not a, for instance, a practicing doctor, or they're not experts in infectious, infection control, or epidemiology, and they're up against someone who is a bona fide, credible expert, who's all over the data. If you actually look objectively, and obviously every country has its uh, particular socio-cultural factors, which countries did really well in the pandemic? Southeast Asian nations, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, who'd all faced the SARS outbreak 10 years before were ready. They were ready with testing and tracing and public health with quite aggressive isolation. They were ready to accept public behavioural changes. Uh, Germany did very well in the first wave of the pandemic, or not so well now, but they have enormously well-resourced health system and public health, and were able to do a lot of testing. And then Australia, especially the state of Victoria, bit the bullet and realised that unless they clamped down hard and early, they were going to be overwhelmed like, like Europe had. And, you know, and guess what? Those countries all used a heavy element of statist intervention. State-employed public health experts calling the shots. Quite restrictive measures on individual behaviour, on gatherings, um, use of test, tracking, trace, which sometimes would lead to people being told they had to stay indoors and, and it, you know being an offence not to. In the UK, something like one in five people who were meant to be self-isolating have, have done it properly. And I'm not I'm not into blaming individuals. In many cases, that's because they're in gig economy, zero hours jobs. Maybe they've got caring responsibilities, uh, etc. So it's not always easy. But, you know, the story of the pandemic, if you think about it, Brazil and America have populist leaders who've undermined the seriousness of the pandemic. We've got Boris Johnson who can't make his mind up. And he's trying to please two constituencies. All three of those nations have had a terrible pandemic response in terms of deaths, preventable deaths. So the anti-state neoliberal ideology does not work for this particular context.
0: One London Assembly member, David Curtin, has put a link up on his Twitter feed to the film by Debbie Hicks, who was the woman we mentioned earlier, filming Empty Wards in a Gloucester Hospital. What do you make of a of an elected representative linking To these kind of COVID denial videos and
1: sites like Twitter and Facebook hosting them? I think it's a disgrace. The Nolan principles uh, of public life, you know, about integrity, about impartiality, about objectivity, you know, you want, and it's not just that. I mean, that might be an extreme case, but even yesterday we had Esther McVeigh. uh, tweeting out that there was an acceptable number of deaths that we could put up with. There was another MP last week from East Anglia saying that most of the cases, people were asymptomatic. So I think it's it's deeply irresponsible for an elected representative to be sharing that kind of thing. Of course, this is the self-reinforcing bubble that you find on Facebook and on Twitter and in closed groups, isn't it? What people will do is go for confirmation bias, they will find the study or the scientific expert often not very credible within the field who tells them what they want to hear and they'll latch onto that and then cite it at you but I think one of the reasons why you get these denialists is if they've not met anybody in their own family their own circle who's got sick from COVID it, and, it, and they've not been personally affected by it or maybe they got it and they weren't that ill with it it's easy for them to dismiss it but I I don't know anybody who's been murdered. That doesn't mean murder doesn't happen. I, mean, I don't know anybody who's been killed in a road traffic accident. It doesn't mean road safety doesn't matter. The idea, well, I've not seen it personally, therefore it can't exist, is, is bizarre, isn't it? And I think there's something about a lack of trust in professional experts that I think has gone badly wrong. I'm a you know, senior doctor, multiple degrees, lengthy training. I would not start arguing with you about how radio programs are put together I wouldn't start arguing with a judge about how the law works I wouldn't start arguing with a you know a serving troop in Afghanistan and telling him that their landmines were all fakes and the Taliban had water pistols and no troops were really injured but people have got incredibly arrogant where they they trying to argue with people who are steeped and trained in a field about their own job or their own experience and I've been accused multiple times on social media of being a of lying about my own job, lying about what I'm seeing, uh, you know, making up the data. And I think that there is a special place in hell reserved for people with some scientific qualifications and experience who keep feeding the conspiracy theorists and the denialists the, the raw meat to carry on with their beliefs.
0: Professor David Oliver. And if you've got a story you want to share or a concern you want to raise, just drop us a direct message through our Twitter feed at Byline Times Pod. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and you're listening to the Byline Times podcast, which, like our website and Byline TV, is funded by your generosity. Just £36 a year sustains all of that brilliant, fearless journalism. And you get our wonderful monthly paper, The Byline Times, in return. What a bargain! Get more information at BylineTimes.com. That's BylineTimes.com. Now, the US government has failed in its attempt to extradite WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who was responsible for the leaking of hundreds of thousands of confidential documents, some of which revealed evidence of atrocities carried out in Iraq and Afghanistan during the War on Terror. We've spoken previously on this podcast to James Dolman, who has been following the story for Byline Times. And when we caught up this week, he told me why the Assange case at the Old Bailey had been so
2: keenly watched by people around the world, I think many people were understandably concerned about the implications of extraditing Julian Assange. The implication that the United States could essentially seize any journalist in any country and prosecute them. But I think we must have some caveats because the the actual judgment, when you look at it, is nothing really to do with the free speech argument.
0: It's more to do with whether or not he would be safe
2: in a US prison, is that right? That's correct. The judge essentially threw out all of the defence arguments in terms of free speech, in terms of Article 10 of the European Human Rights Act, in terms of uh, dual criminality, which was quite a big argument, in terms of the treaty. In fact, it was a very strange judgment because we sat for three quarters of an hour. And just to explain how unusual this is, normally in an extradition case, the judge walks in and says, extradition granted, not granted whatever, and then gives you a written judgment. In this case, the judge spent three quarters of an hour throwing out all the defence arguments over those issues. And then at the last moment, certainly we didn't know Judge Barista had such a talent for drama, at the last moment granted it on the basis that because he would be such a suicide risk in a US prison, given the conditions, she wasn't granting the extradition. Yeah, she said, didn't she, the judge, the
0: overall impression is of a depressed and sometimes despairing man who is genuinely fearful about his future. I find that the mental condition of Mr Assange is such that it would be oppressive to extradise him to the United States of America. Now, given that that was the the sole ground for refusing extradition, it's not altogether surprising then that the United States is considering an appeal.
2: There are two schools of thought on that. If, for example, Vanessa Baritza had said, yeah, I agree that it's a freedom of speech issue or I agree that the US government doesn't have the power, I would understand that the US government would be definitely going to appeal. However, it's such a narrow judgment and it's based on such uh, overwhelming psychiatric evidence that Mr Assange, not only be given the conditions that he would face, which we discussed in the last uh, podcast, would be aiming to commit suicide, but that he was intelligent enough and determined enough that he would probably succeed. So it's difficult to work out on what basis the US would appeal. I, I certainly haven't worked out on, on what legal basis they could appeal.
0: Yes, it was suggested, wasn't it? We discussed this last time, that he would be placed in a correctional institution where no matter how loud he screamed, no one would be able to hear him. That was quite a chilling bit of evidence, and it's the weight of that, really, that seems to have swayed the judge.
2: Well, I mean, as the judge said, as she pointed out in our our judgment, she accepted the evidence of uh, Professor Paul Kugelman, who was the um, defence psychiatrist, uh, who said that Mr Sanji's condition, he had autism, uh, he had Asperger's, so he would face a, a very, very difficult situation in any prison. But certainly a prison where, as we discussed before, you're in a cell for 23 hours a day. No one communicates with you. You get a maximum of two phone calls a month. And your only exercise is to take in from one cell after 23 hours in a cell, which only contains a mattress and a toilet, a cell the size of a parking space. And you're put in another cell for an hour. That's your exercise. And then taking out and putting back in your original cell. I'm looking back at The Guardian on
0: 28th of November 2010. This is when the WikiLeaks documents were first put into the public domain. U.S. Embassy Cable's leak sparks global diplomatic crisis. More than 250,000 dispatches reveal U.S. foreign strategies. Diplomats ordered to spy on allies as well as enemies. Saudi king urged Washington to bomb Iran. From the United States government's point of view, at least, you can see why they're keen to silence people like Assange, because if nothing else, this is hugely, hugely embarrassing for them.
2: That's true. But again, as we must recall, this happened in 2010. And the Obama administration, after much discussion and debate, made a decision not to prosecute Assange because of what they called the New York Times problem, which was the New York Times had also published the documents. The Guardian had published the documents. So if you prosecute Assange, why are you not prosecuting the New York Times? He seems like the ultimate citizen journalist in the sense that
0: he wasn't somebody previously known to have a track record for publishing investigative accounts of what the US government was doing. There was a sense in which these documents were simply dumped in the public domain and shared with newspapers who had journalists who could surf through them and then try to work out what was really important. Was that a significant part of the extradition case, that he, he was, if you like, not a regular journalist?
2: There was an interesting exchange when the prosecution of the US government were cross-examining Daniel Ellsberg, the Pentagon Papers whistleblower who, as we know, is credited, his leaks are credited with perhaps ending the Vietnam War. And the the prosecution said to Ellsberg, Mr. Assange isn't a journalist. And Ellsberg replied, well, firstly, it's not for the government to decide who is a journalist. But secondly, journalism is a human activity. We are all entitled to do journalism. There is not like an exam that you need to pass. We are all entitled to do journalistic things in our lives. It's part of humanity. It's part of our rights. So that's the first point. The second point I'd make is, originally Assange did not dump the documents in the public domain. As we discussed, I think, in the last podcast, he originally partnered with various media organisations. But due to a book written by a Guardian journalist, David Leask, who published the password for the confidential server, the documents were originally published, in fact, by other websites before WikiLeaks published them. It's interesting, isn't it, then, that
0: journalism could be seen by the US government as a, as a kind of club to which you have to belong. But I suppose by definition, if you carry out a journalistic activity, whether or not you write for a recognised news
2: outlet or not, you're a journalist. Exactly. I mean, what I thought was very interesting about Ellsberg's formulation was it's not about whether you're a journalist or not. It's whether you're doing journalism or not. It also emerged during the
0: case, just a a personal detail, really, that Assange had fathered two children and that he'd got a family life here. That was part of the argument against extradition, wasn't it? I wasn't aware of those details of his personal life. i have just not been paying close enough attention.
2: It did come out during the hearings in February, actually, that uh, he had a partner and with two children. But interestingly, the judge dismissed that as an argument. She said, yes, it's bad for his family, But all extraditions are bad for someone's family. So she refused to even take that into account. In the course of this, Assange, although he is
0: now regarded as a champion of the freedom of the press, some people have said that his behaviour has perhaps given succour to the Russians. There were the allegations of sexual misconduct, which were originally pursued in Sweden, but which have now been dropped with no stain on Assange's name. So around Assange, there was this a whole series of question marks, which meant he wasn't universally seen as a paragon of virtue, even by those
2: who would normally support the freedom of the press. He is a very polarising figure, absolutely true. It's certainly a proven fact that WikiLeaks did contact the Donald Trump campaign during the election, the 2016 election. That's a fact. And offered assistance. On the Swedish allegations, I don't really have much to say. They were allegations, they were, uh, there was an indictment made, but there was never a prosecution, so innocent until proven guilty and it stays on that one. But yes, he's a polarising figure, and I'm sure he'll remain a polarising figure. James Dolman there on Julian Assange.
0: That's all for this week but if you've enjoyed listening please give us a review on whichever podcast platform you use and spread the word if you can on social media. Thanks very much indeed and don't forget to subscribe as well if you haven't done already to the Byline Times. More information at bylinetimes.com My name is Adrian Goldberg I'll see you again next week. This has been the Byline Times podcast. Cheers!